Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we're reading through the book of Hebrews. We've gotten two chapters in. Today we're on Hebrews chapter 3. And the book is primarily a pastoral encouragement for believers. And the pastoral encouragement is made primarily on a series of appeals from the Old Testament. So what you have is you have the author of Hebrews going through a letter, in letter format, writing to a church and saying, look, I see that you're starting to shrink back in your faith and some of you are starting to drift. Some of you aren't even going to church anymore. I want to warn you about continuing down that path because it won't lead to good stuff. And in just the first two chapters, we've been given this series of appeals from the Old Testament. The first appeal was in chapter one where we see that Christ's message is superior to the message that the angels delivered on Sinai. And what's interesting is that the way that the author of Hebrews writes is he states something as truth and then writes about the implications of what that true thing should mean in our lives. So he says, the message we have received from Christ is superior to the message of angels. That's true. Therefore, don't neglect Christ's message. His message is better than any message you've ever gotten before, therefore don't neglect it. And then last week we saw that Christ is superior as the representative for all mankind, therefore live free from the fear of death. So this pattern that you have of the author presenting an argument and then giving the implications for it is found with this one interesting word, therefore. The word therefore is found 20 times in the book of Hebrews. Because this entire book is the author saying, X is true and therefore you should consider the implications. And that's one of the things that makes some good preaching good. And it's hard to put our fingers on this. You may listen to a sermon and you're just like, that was really good. I don't know why it's good. Or you listen to another message from preaching, you're just like, all right, like everything he said was true, but like, I don't know, just, I can't put my finger on it. Most of the time, what you can't put your finger on is the fact that pastors have a habit of declaring true things and not doing the work to help you understand the implications of those true things. There is a difference between just heralding, this is true, this is true, this is true, and then pastorally coming saying, this is true, therefore, you should consider this. But the writer of Hebrews is good at it. We've got over 20 times where he comes in and he says, this is true, now consider the implications. So today in Hebrews 3, we're gonna, be, we're, gonna, we're gonna see that there is something else that is true, another appeal from the Old Testament, that there is something in there that is true, and therefore we should consider something new. 
The true thing is that Christ is superior to Moses. And the implications have to do with the rest that we have been invited into in Christ. So with that in mind, let's get into it. Hebrews chapter three, let's read the first two verses to kind of set the tone for where we're going. Hebrews chapter three, verse one says this, therefore, there it is again, see, therefore. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Pause right there. Chapter three, verse one starts with therefore. That word is connecting the argument in Hebrews two with the implications of Hebrews three. The argument in Hebrews 2 is that Jesus was a superior human representative for all mankind. There is no man who has ever lived who has passed every test in the way that Jesus has. He never sinned. In in given every opportunity, he always chose the Father's will over his own will, or even his disciples' will. He's the perfect human representative. That's true. Therefore, there are implications for us, the the primary implications for us are, we should now consider this human representative, who is the greatest human who ever lived, as our apostle and high priest. This thing is true, therefore we should see him specific, in a very specific way. That specific way being he is the apostle. Apostle is a word that essentially means a human representative. Because he was the greatest representative of all, of all mankind, we should view him as God's ambassador to mankind. What is God like? Look at Jesus. Because Jesus is the apostle, he's the ambassador for God's kingdom. But we should also look at him as the high priest. So what the writer of Hebrews is doing is because of who Jesus is and what he accomplished, we should view him in two unique ways. As the apostle, the great representative that came down to us for God, but also the one who represents us before the Father. This isn't new, we touched on this last week, but when you view Christ, you view him as the great high priest who stands before the heavenly father and says, I'm here on behalf of this person. Go ahead and input your name. And I am offering not just any old sacrifice, I am offering myself as the sacrifice. See, he wasn't just the great high priest, he was the only high priest in the history of high priests who wasn't just the high priest, but also the sacrifice. But there's something else in verse two, and this something else is what introduces the argument that the author of Hebrews is gonna introduce for the rest of this chapter. He says, verse two, this Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses was also faithful. So the author is gonna use this concept of faithfulness as a way to introduce this New Test- excuse me, this Old Testament appeal. 
Christ was faithful in the same way that Moses was faithful. Now he's kind of glossing over this, but there's a background story you need to know about Moses being called faithful. Because it's not just we read the Old Testament, we're like, okay, well, Moses seemed like a pretty faithful guy. No, God called Moses faithful. And he did it in a story in Numbers chapter 12. I'm just gonna give you the summary rather than going there and reading through it. If you want some homework, go, through, go read Numbers 12. But here's the story. Moses had uh, siblings. He had uh, a brother named Aaron and a sister named Miriam. And Moses was leading and speaking to God's people on God's behalf. But he also had this wife that his brother and sister didn't like. Moses had married a girl from the nation of Cush, which is modern Ethiopia. So Moses had a, a black wife. And for whatever reason, this really upset his brother and sister. Now, we don't know specifically if it had to do with race, but we know mankind, and that may have played a part in it. She certainly wasn't Hebrew, so that may have also played a part in it. Regardless of the color of her skin or where she's from, the brother and sister took issue with Moses about his wife. And then it went one step further, and they started assuming in their own lives, well, Moses doesn't have to be the only representative for God's people. God can speak through me too. I don't have to do everything that Moses said. I mean, look at his wife. God can speak to me and then I can speak to the people. So they started a rebellion against Moses because of some of their own personal bias and bitterness that grew into something much worse and God called a meeting of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Now, I just wanna know, that's the, that's the one invitation you don't wanna get an email from God saying, we need to meet. So God called Moses, Miriam, and Aaron together for a meeting, and he said to them, I speak to you, and I speak to some of God's people through intermediaries. But when I talk to Moses, I talk to him face to face. Numbers actually says mouth to mouth. That one's for Lyle. <laughs> I speak to Moses face to face because of all of my people, he is the most faithful. Now, just a side note, fun part of the story, God cursed Miriam with leprosy because of that whole event. Yeah, you, know, you don't want that. But the point is that the author of Hebrews is calling on an event from Numbers 12, 7, where God said with his own voice, Moses is the most faithful in all of my house. Now he said that phrase, in all my house, Moses is the most faithful. So the writer of Hebrews is drawing on those words, faithfulness and God's house, and he's going to make an appeal to the church that is, he's writing this letter to based off of these two concepts, faithfulness and God's house. Let's pick up the argument in verse three. 
Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. We're not belittling Moses, we're not lowering him down. He was faithful and a good servant in all of God's house, and he even testified of the things that were, be, that were going to be spoken of later. Verse six, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now let's pause right there. Because the argument that the writer of Hebrews is making has many layers to it. The first layer to the argument is that God is building a house for himself. Now this Greek word house can mean two different things. It can mean a literal house the structure, the building, but it can also mean the people associated with that structure. And it's used both ways in the New Testament. In 1 Peter 2.5, it's referred to as, the word house is referred to as an actual dwelling, and then in Acts 16.31 through 33, it's referred to as the people who are in this house. And we're told in verse uh, six here that the way that we're supposed to read house here is not tabernacle or temple. We're supposed to read this as God's people. So the sense that we're reading through this, when God says, Moses is the most faithful in all my house, what he's saying is, he is the most faithful servant among all of my people. And what the writer of Hebrews is trying to argue is that God, all the way back from the fall of the garden, has been trying to implement his plan, not trying, effectively implementing his plan, from the fall in the garden to build a house for himself, but not just a physical house, a house being a people for himself. And it started in Sinai. You've got Israel. These are his people. This is his house. But Moses realized that moving forward, this would be expanded. This house was going to get many additions to it. And under Christ, the house is going to expand. And not just Israel and the Jews are going to be a part of this house. Now Gentiles are going to be invited into this house. And this is the thing that we touched on a little bit in um, Revelation that a lot of believers have a hard time with. A lot of times we think Old Testament Israel, that's the old stuff. New Testament Christians, that's the new stuff. And we think in our mind there's these two categories, there's these two classifications, but that just isn't biblical. Since the beginning of the foundation, God wanted a people for himself, not two separate peoples for himself. The call that he gave to Israel when he formed them as a nation started in the blessing of Abraham. And the blessing to Abraham was, I want you to be a blessing to all the nations. See, that was the original purpose of forming a people to bless the nations, to call the nations in. We saw that when we studied through Isaiah. What was the purpose of Israel? To call the nations to learn the ways of the Lord, to come into Israel, to become a part of the house, a part of the family, to be grafted in, to be adopted in. But Israel failed, so Jesus became the better Israel. And through him, 
There's not some new separate family. Now, Gentiles are invited into this house that has been built all the way back in Exodus. So what we're looking at here is that when, if you're not Jewish, if you're a Gentile, you've been invited into this house that God's been building for a very long time, and all the qualifications previously for being a part of this house have now been fulfilled on your behalf through Jesus, but you don't just throw them away because that's all precedent that set up the house. You gotta read the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, it gives us parameters and understanding for what this house is that God is building and why Jesus did the things that he did. It's the reason why in this book we have to, we, we spend a great deal of time learning about Jesus as our high priest. We don't have high priest anymore. There's a concept of priest. Like why even read about that? Why is it important? Because it's the way that you became part of the house by him being the high priest on your behalf. It's important. And so the writer of Hebrews is drawing on this older understanding of Moses being faithful in the house, even though the house is much bigger now. The second layer to this argument is that Moses, even though he was the most faithful servant in all the house, he was only ever a servant. And this is the third argument. Servants never hold greater honor in the house than sons do because sons are part of the family and servants are hired to do the work. So in the mind of someone that is receiving this letter, they're thinking, man, I, I think very highly of Moses. He's a big deal. The whole reason why we have the law, man, he, and, and, and in the midst of unfaithful Israel, all those wandering years in the desert, like Moses was the one who was the most faithful. The author of Hebrews is leveraging that emotion and those feelings for Moses to make a new appeal. Yes, he was very important, but he does not hold more value or honor or glory than the son and the builder of the house. And that's what's important. Because what we're starting to see here theologically is that the house that was formed on Sinai was formed by someone who is Jesus. He's the builder of the house. He's the son of the house. And therefore holds more glory because sons are always greater than servants and builders are always greater than the house itself. Why are builders greater than the house itself? Because builders can go build another house and if the house is left untouched, it will fall into disrepair. A person made in the image of God is never more valuable than a thing that that person can create. Builders are always more valuable than the house because a builder can build another house, but a house can't build another house. So the argument has multiple layers. We've learned that God is building a house for himself. We've learned that uh, in this house there are servants and the most faithful servant was Moses, but there is a man who holds more honor than the most faithful servant in the house and that is Jesus who is a son of the house and also the builder of the house. If all of that is true, what are the implications? We're about to see another therefore. Go to verse seven. Therefore, you see what he's doing? 
He's giving us something that is true, an appeal from the Old Testament, and now he's connecting with, therefore, the implications for our life. If all of this is true, what does it mean for us? Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you any evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of the rebellion. He's quoting Psalm 95 here, we'll get to that in just a second. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Who did God say, you will not enter into my, uh, my rest? Was it the Midianites, the Egyptians? Was it the Canaanites? No, it was his own people. It was Israel who followed Moses out of Egypt. They are the ones who were told, you're not gonna enter into rest. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? It was Israel. And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. All right, now what is he arguing here? He's saying that the implications of Jesus being greater than Moses come from an understanding in Numbers 13 and 14. Now I have to give you a little more background here before we can start understanding and unraveling what he's saying here because we're not Jewish and we're not really familiar with the story. We kind of know it, but I don't really know where he's going with this. What he's talking about is a series of events that transpired after Israel left Egypt. Israel left Egypt, they made it to Sinai, they're standing before God, God gives these commandments, Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days while he's there, they make a golden calf, they start rebelling immediately, God wants to wipe them off the map, Moses intercedes, God's wrath is held back, they eventually make it into this place where they're on the verge of the promised land, while they're wandering in the wilderness, they're constantly complaining about what they have to eat, that they don't have enough water, that they should have stayed in uh, Egypt around the fires, at least they had meat pots to eat at night, wandering around in the desert is not fun, so they eventually get to the, the edge of the promised land. They send in spies to spy out the land and all of the spies, but a few of them come back with an unfavorable report. Guys, uh, we just saw the promised land God promised us and it's filled with giants, like big old dudes. I don't know how, like we look like gnats next to them. There's no way we're gonna conquer them. 
They're saying this after they just watched God part the Red Sea and swallow the largest army in the world. I don't know how we're gonna defeat a couple giants. Well, they were rebellious about water, they were rebellious about food, and now when God has got them on the very edge of the land, we're gonna go check it out. We're gonna, I'm about to give you the battle plan. They're like, oh, I don't think we can do it. I don't know if God's got this. God's like, you know what? You know what? You know what? He said, I swear in my wrath, none of you are going to enter into this rest. I will let you wander in the desert for 40 years until every single one of this rebellious generation dies and the next generation rises up and they can take the land and enter into the rest. Now, why is that story important? Because the results of the story is that unbelieving Israel didn't enter rest. This story is recalled later in Psalm 95 when the psalmist draws on the story to encourage the people at the time of the psalm being written to not be hard of heart like they were back in the wilderness. So if you can kind of just visualize a timeline right here in front of me. You've got Moses and Israel and a period of time where God says, you know what, I've had enough of you. You're not going to enter into my rest. A period of time later under the kings, Israel starts being rebellious again and their hearts start getting hard. And the psalmist writes a song. Hey guys, you remember what it was like back then? You remember what our grandparents talked us about? You remember how they never entered into rest because of their unbelief? Don't do that today. And the author of Hebrews is like, man, that's some pretty strong precedent. I'm gonna draw on Psalm 95 that was drawing on Numbers 13 and 14, and I'm gonna make the same point to the church that the psalmist made to Israel that Moses was trying to make to Israel. You follow? And so what he says is, guys, guess what? Today is today. Do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. Because what we have here is something greater than Moses. So follow the, the logic here. Hebrews is appealing to, to Psalm 95, which is quoting a story from Numbers, and they're saying, under Moses, Israel rebelled and never entered rest, the rest being Canaan. Their example became a warning for the psalmist and the period of, of uh, the kings, but this warning hasn't disappeared. The warning is alive and well in the early church when the writer of Hebrews is writing, but it's amplified even more because we're not talking about another Moses situation who was just a servant in the house. Now we're talking about Jesus who is the son and the builder of the house. And if what we have in Jesus is better than what we had in Moses, then the warning of Psalm 95 is a warning for us and it's amplified even more because what we have is not just better than Moses, what we have is Jesus and the house he's building is not just Israel, it's eternity. And the rest he's talking about isn't just Cana, he's talking about heaven. 
And when he's talking about today, he's not just talking about today during the time of the kings or today during the time of Moses or even today during the time of Hebrews. The Holy Spirit is using this text to warn us today. Today, today, today is the day that you don't let your heart grow hard. Why? Because the implications are if you do, you will not enter rest. Well, this is fascinating. Because we just had in Hebrews 1 and 2, the author appealed to the Old Testament to give us a truth and an implication of a warning. The truth is that Jesus is superior to angels in the message that was delivered. And that message that the angels delivered had repercussions if you didn't obey it. There was judgment if you didn't obey it. How much more, how much greater is the message that Jesus has delivered to us that's greater than the message of the angels? And if there were repercussions for not obeying the message from angels, how much more do you think that there will be repercussions and judgment if you ignore the message of Jesus? Don't ignore the message of Jesus or you will suffer judgment. Now he's making the appeal to don't shrink back in your faith, don't drift in your faith just because you're afraid of the punishment. Don't drift back in your faith because you might, write, you might possibly run the risk of forfeiting the ability to enjoy the rest that were promised in him. And you're just like, all right, hold on one second. Are you telling me that I can lose my salvation? No, that's not what I'm saying. Because there's nothing that you did to earn your salvation, so there's nothing you can do to sin your way out of it. But how did you get saved? You, you believed. You believed. You put your faith in him. What the writer of Hebrews is warning against is unbelief. What he's warning is, if you don't persevere to the end in your belief, it doesn't matter if you went to church every single week. If you don't believe, you won't enter rest. Simple as that. And I'm not making the appeal, Hebrews is. Without the perseverance to the end, without believing and keep on believing, you run the risk of drifting into doubt and forfeiting the promise you have been given in rest because in the same way that Israel drove God to wrath because of their unbelief and suffered consequences and didn't enter rest, in the same way that the psalmist warned of that happening again, the writer of Hebrews draws on this Old Testament text to make the appeal, church, do not drift in your faith. Do not think that you can skip church on a weekly basis. Do not think that it's enough to just read a book about it, to watch it on TV. That is not going to cut it. You can't live stream community. Because what happens is you sit there and you watch something being declared to you as true every single week and you start only picking through the things you like hearing and ignoring the things that are driving to your heart. But you have no one sitting next to you who's gonna put their finger in your chest and say, hey, hey, that thing that he said, that's, that's you. 
You gotta work on that. No one is seeing the backside of your back. No one's watching your six. No one's seeing an accurate view of where you are and how you're growing. No one's challenging you to think differently or to grow more because you're just sitting in, at home on your couch in your pajamas, soothing your soul, thinking, well, I'm doing the least possible. This is what's required of me. I've gotta hear truth. Yeah, that's true. You do gotta hear truth. But that's only a part of it. You gotta rub shoulders against people who drive you nuts. Because if you don't, you're not gonna be refined and transformed. You're just gonna keep on being that old curmudgeon thing that you call you. God, it's beautiful when you submit yourself in community and you start loving one another and you start looking past faults and you stop saying, I'm not gonna have any relationship with that person because they wear that weird shirt and they talk about that weird stuff and they're just weird. You know somebody thinks that about you, right? <laughs> like, real talk, you are the weird person in somebody's conversation. <laughs> but the beauty is that we have all been invited into this family where we all get to be weird together, and at the end of the journey, we're all transformed to be like him, not like you. But if you're at the church of self, just watching it, not paying attention, just ignoring, just thinking, well, you know, the least amount possible, then, then at the end of it, you will be formed into just a, a different image of yourself. You, you won't be transformed because that's the way that God functions. He calls his people to be a part of a community. And if you exempt yourself from that, you will not grow past yourself. And so here's the warning. You could possibly forfeit entering rest just like Israel did, which is a powerful pastoral warning against hardening of heart. It's a wake-up call, but it, it, it begs the question, okay, well, I don't want that. So what do I gotta do? What, what sh how should I respond? What are the implications if this warning is true? The answer, luckily, is found in verses 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you any evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So the first answer, take care of your own heart. Root out sin and unbelief by holding the word of God up to your eyes as an accurate reflection of what you really look like. I kind of lose my temper. I'm kind of temperamental about these things. I like things a specific way. Well, how about you just hold the word up, of God up against that and let it reflect your true self and see whether you are acting more like a heathen dog, Gentile, or Jesus Christ. Because we can say, oh, no, no, I love Jesus. I, I follow Jesus. You, you don't follow his example. You're, you're, not, you're not following his lead. It kind of looks like you're just following your own lead and just doing whatever you want. Who tells you that? The word of God reveals that. People in community reveal that, which is the second exhortation. Verse 11, exhort one another every day. You know how you can't do that? If you're not close to one another every day. Exhort one another every day for as long as it's called today. 
so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what is the first remedy to your heart starting to drift into forfeiting your rest and enjoying the benefits of your salvation and your uh, adoption into the kingdom of God? Well, the first thing you do is you regularly take care of your own heart. That's a command. The writer of Hebrews is telling us, take care of your own heart, examine it, root out unbelief. But the next thing is to exhort each other every day. Get close to other believers, speak life and truth, and expose the deceitfulness of sin. So when you've got one of your friends and they start talking about this book that they read that's got some crazy new ideas on something, you've been reading the book and you're quick to say, "Mm, I don't know about that. Let's talk through that for a second, because if this is true, it leads to this thing that seems to be contrary to what it says right here in Hebrews chapter 3. You can't do that unless you're close to one another, bouncing ideas off of one another, and you're rooted in the word so that you can sniff out nonsense when someone spouts it. What God is asking of his people is to be sharp, to know his character, so that when something that's contrary to his character pops up, it's like, bam, that's whack-a-mole. And I have any part of that nonsense. But here's the deceitful thing. Sin has a way of borrowing things from God's kingdom, flipping it upside down, and then presenting it from the world. And it, man, it smells kind of like something that might be no, that, that's not the Lord. And for your brothers, it's like, well, I don't know, it kind of looks like it. But you say, all right, well, show me from the word of God where this idea, this ideology is rooted in God for his people. And then you start to say, oh, well, it's not. All right then we all agree that we have to stop believing it and following it. That's how this is supposed to work. We're so sharp that when the world or another believer or some podcast you're listening to presents something that's, I don't know, it seems right, you don't have to message me, hey, pastor, is this right? Look, I I don't mind that. I I appreciate the messages. Don't stop sending the messages. But my desire is to not be your Cliff's Notes. At the end of the day, I want you trained and equipped so you get to a place you're just like, yeah, that ain't scripture. (laughs) He said what on TV? No, no. And you stop being afraid of reading something like, ah, I'm afraid of reading this because I, I might be swayed. You can't be swayed because you know the truth. And you sift the truth through the word of God because this is in your veins. It's deep in your bones. It shapes your entire worldview. So it doesn't matter what comes your way. You're not at risk of believing something false because you already know what's true. That comes by exhorting each other every day and being close in each other's lives. And then the last exhortation, 14, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. Share in Christ to hold your confidence to the end. When I was preparing for this message, the thing that came to mind while I was reading that was the parable of the seeds from Matthew 13. 
Jesus throws these seeds out to the ground. This, well, the sower, he sows these seeds, and some of them, man, they just they get picked up by the birds before the end of the day. They don't, they don't sprout at all. Some of them, they get some roots down, and they actually pop up, and you're like, oh, okay, we might have something, then all of a sudden the, the sun scorches them out where the thorns and the thistles start growing over the top of them and the cares of this world choke them out. The important thing to remember is that those seeds started to sprout. They put down roots, but they didn't endure to the end to produce abundant fruit. And we look out in the church and like, oh, you know, I invited my non-believer friend and they came and they got saved and things are good and you know, and two weeks later, you wanna go to church? Kind of over it. Oh, I don't have time. I'm so consumed with whatever. The parable is true. And the writer of Hebrews is pleading with this church and the Holy Spirit is pleading with us today. You have to persevere to the end. Because here's the truth. As long as it's called today, you cannot afford to let yourself drift or shrink back in your faith. Because if you're not growing, you're shrinking. There is no sitting still. There is no, I'm just kind of coasting with the Lord. No, you're lying to yourself. If you're not passionately pursuing Jesus Christ as supreme over all things, then you're wasting your life. If you're not considering the supremacy of Jesus in every decision you make, should I go here, should I buy this, should I do this thing? Well, what brings the most glory to Jesus? If that's not in your decision-making process, then you need to get back into the Word and let it shape your decision-making process some more. Because the only reason why you're still breathing as a child of God is to be an ambassador for God's kingdom to this world. It's not to live your best life right now. Your purpose right now is to be a light in this world and an accurate representative of God's kingdom. So while it's still called today, do not shrink in your faith, but press on, move forward, get close to other believers, and treasure Jesus above all. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.